You know, looking back um, as a pastor, uh, number one, I'm very much appreciative of our Sunday night services so I, we can just kind of focus on the Holy Spirit and, and have the altar encounter, and which we God's been moving in our altars during the AM services, and we're grateful for that. However, you know, in our culture today, with everybody having the, new, the news media available to them, you know, 24 hours a day, cultural events are no longer hidden or even, and not just our culture, I'm talking about events that take place in the cities around the world are instantly streamed in front of you. Are, are y'all with me out there? All right, and so it's difficult as pastors in our generation to not kind of speak along this line on a more regular basis than maybe what we've done previously. You can't help it. It's just you're, you're confronted with it. And a week ago, Sunday, I spoke uh, a message that I entitled, Send Relief. And in that message, I shared with you that the, the cataclysmic events that have been taking place around the world, or the tragedies, let me say, do not necessarily indicate that that means that it is either the judgment of God, number one, right, or number two, that it is like, like the prelude to Armageddon or something of that nature. Because in this world, you'll have tribulation. Now, Jesus said that 2,000 years ago. Let me tell you how long the earth has experienced tribulation. Since Cain slew his brother Abel. And you know how long it's going to have tribulation? Until Jesus sits on the throne. Right? And so we have to be very careful of looking at events that are taking place and assuming or presuming that that is some type of apocalyptic event. God doesn't want us living in fear. I'm not saying we should live in ignorance. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be aware. I, we, we should. We, we got to be aware. But on the flip side of this, God's called us to be salt and light. God's called us to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, Right? The Bible says, Jesus' own teaching, he said, let your light so shine before men so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When Paul was on the ship that eventually uh, was broken up in Acts, I didn't, this is not in the notes. This is just spontaneous. So I'm going to go with it. In Acts chapter number 27, the ship that was broken up, uh, you know, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea as he cast against a certain island called Melita, uh, you may remember Paul warned those that were trying to escape to the sea. Originally, he said that God had spoken to him and said, unless you remain in the ship, you shall not be saved. Okay, for a moment of time, let me go a little further. Paul did not abandon even those unregenerate men. He did not abandon those prisoners. He had an angel of the Lord around him. He could have prayed for some type of escapism, but he didn't. He was the calming presence in the midst of confusion and you know what that's what the church needs to be we need to be the calming presence in the midst of chaos well i want to talk to you today from a familiar passage and and, and as i do you'll understand more and i'm gonna go ahead and give you my title i don't know once again part two that's part but there are a few things i do know but there are a lot of things I don't know. So what I'm going to do today is, number one, I'll have to have help for my infamous glasses because we're going to journey through a familiar passages of Scripture. 
in a moment from Matthew 24. But we're going to look at it in a little different light or lens. So please allow me to just kind of, kind of build a little bit of a backdrop. In the context of what is known in the theological world of eschatology, it's not a word that the common person uses on a regular basis. Simply put, it means the study of the last things. Now, most apply it to what is uh, associated with the last things prior to either the return of Christ or the destruction of the world or the judgment of the world. Now, in that study of eschatology, there are so many branches, right? I mean, it's like blood vessels. It's like a capillary is just shooting off, going everywhere. But there are three main viewpoints that I'm, I'm going to just kind of expound just real quickly. The one that you are most familiar with, and those of the, that come on Wednesday nights, historically I have referenced these o- over the latter few years. The, the one that you are f- most familiar with because this is the dominant theological viewpoint of most that are in Protestant Pentecostalism is what we call, is what's known as futurist. In essence, that even things that you read about biblically that many deem historical Actually, there is a belief in the futurist camp that there's a lot yet to happen, things that are yet to happen. Other camp is called the historicists. Now, the historicists are those that primarily this doctrine began to evolve, especially during the Reformation, because the historicists saw that the book of Revelation and their belief was age-long, and during the age-long unfolding of the events, They culminated with a theological viewpoint that the Roman papacy was the beast of of Revelation chapter 13. And they would be able to use that. That actually aided greatly in the Protestant movement separating itself from Catholicism. Now, you don't hear a lot about that particular doctrinal viewpoint today, but it is still prevalent. Matter of fact, if you read many of the ancient church fathers that gave us some of our original commentaries in the Protestant movement, such as a Matthew Henry, Barnes, these type of individuals, many of them were what we would call historicists. They thought that everything was unfolding age long. But today, oddly enough, I'm going to take you through the lens a little bit of what's the other camp that's called Praetorism. And I'm not being a proponent of praetorism, but I do want you to see a particular viewpoint for just a little while today. Praetorism in the Latin simply means the past. And what it, praetorists believe primarily that the, what many in the futurist camp associate with futuristic prophecies and cataclysmic events yet to come on the earth have actually happened in the past. Now, most futurists believe that many of them happened in the past, but that they are also parallel or that they are also going to happen in the future, while most praetorists do not hold to that particular viewpoint. But that's the lens for just a little while that I'm going to highlight because I want to say something. I want to remember now, if you're starting to prejudge me already, don't do this. Stay with me and then let things unfold for just a moment. We're going to look primarily at what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And we're going to look at it primarily through the lens of praetorism. We're not going to do so conclusively. I'm not making conclusive remarks. I'm just saying let's just look at it objectively because maybe there's a viewpoint. Maybe there's a point that you need to hear. All I'm asking, all I want is I want that word that God has for the church. Right? Every teaching has an objective behind it. And the, uh, there, there has to be an objective. And that's I'll, I'll share with you a little bit more as that unfolds. Now, 
most futurists believe that the, store, the, the record of what was known as the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 24, 21. Each writer differed a little bit in the information that they supplied. Um, they prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. The futurists believe this. But many, again, hold in the futurist camp that many of you are familiar with that there is an application to a future date that would involve a, the destruction of what is known as a third temple in Jerusalem. Now, I'm preaching to the choir because many of you have watched and you have read, you've watched, you know, television, TBN, famous preachers, Jack Van Impey, John Hagee, others that have preached along this line. And so, right, y'all are very familiar with that vein and anticipation of, of a third temple. But we're going to, again, look at it through the lens of the praetorists who are arguing that the prophecy that was spoken by Jesus in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 was fulfilled in the first century and does not necessarily have to have a yet unfinished connotation to it. Does that make sense? Are y'all with me out there? All right, I want, I want your interest here today because it does interest me. Often at the heart of the debate is one verse of Scripture, and it, it's found first in Matthew 24, verse 34. And we're going to start there today. That's where we're going to start at. And, I mean, when I say that, I'll have to backtrack because we're going to just skim. I'm not going to preach all of Matthew 24. I know some of you are saying, Pastor, there's like 50 verses of Scripture in there, and I know you're already saying, surely he's not going to cover it in its entirety. But we will skim a lot of it here today. But let's read this here together. In Matthew 24, verse 34, um, it, well, let's just back it up to the 32nd verse and read it in its context. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What's often applied through the futuristic teacher, teachers is that Jesus here is referencing uh, that when the fig tree begins to blossom or to bloom and he is prophetically declaring a date, not in 30 AD when the prophecy was given, but that he's declaring a date much longer in the future, not in 70 AD when the temple was originally destroyed, but the fig tree that most futurists make application to is the belief that the, the, the rise of the modern state of Israel in 1948 when the Jews, after suffering such oppression during the World War II in the hands of Hitler and the, the German people, that when they were allowed to return to their native homeland and, and, and just miraculously blossomed into an entity, that that was, in essence, the blooming or the blossoming of the fig tree. And so many in the futurist camp, I'm not telling you what camp I'm in. It's not about me being in a camp. This is about us looking at things objectively, right? I'm removing myself. I'm just showing you different viewpoints. All right, in this context, the futurist then... Uh, began to teach that the, the potential was is that a generation, it says in Matthew 24, 34, this generation shall not pass, that a generation historically has been 40 years. Now, maybe the reason this is really prevalent in my life is because I, got, I received the baptism in the Holy Spirit in 1986. 
And at that time, there was a lot of teaching in Pentecostalism along this vein. Why? Because they were, we were nearing the 40th year since 1948. Prophecies were taking place. Books were being written that in 1988, there was a famous book, now an infamous book that was written, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture of the Church Would Take Place in 1988. And some of you got that book still on your shelf. It's not worth very much, just so you'll know today. But now, so then what happened, let's just go ahead and adjust it. So after that date, then that date was then reconfigured to the fig tree. They took it back. Instead of to 1948, they backed it up or they moved it forward to 1967 and said, well, it wasn't the founding of the state of Israel. It was the capturing of the city of Jerusalem because the, the, at the Six-Day War, the, the Jewish people regained the city of Jerusalem, Correct. And so from that day forward, now that concluded in 2007. But there was a lot of anticipation in the Christian movement at that, or in, in the futurist camp along the lines in 2007. But that date has come and gone. And now there's a reconfiguration. Now the reconfiguration is, is that a generation is not necessarily 40 years, but it's 70 years. So then if you reconfigure, then 2018 is 70 years from 1948. And there's some, you know, and listen, there's, all, there, there's definitely cataclysmic events taking place in the Middle East, right? So I can understand why people, you know, look at it and are searching for some type of application. Now, if you take the 70 years and apply it to 1967, then it's uh, 2037 before that would reach its apex. So here, just for a moment, let's just hold, go back. So now many of you are familiar with this. That's the typical futurist view that the generation, the budding of the fig tree was the blossoming of the reborn state of Israel. However, the praetorists hold to the application that a generation was 40 years just like most in the futurist camp do as well and that it was prophetically fulfilled all the events of Matthew 24 not all the events of Revelation not all the events prophesied by the Apostle Paul and others but Matthew 24 Mark 13 and Luke chapter 21 was fulfilled in AD 70 with that with the terrible destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you put that in parallel for just a moment, or, or, or in perspective, excuse me, if you put it in perspective, it was in A.D. 30 that Jesus said those words. Forty, dear, 40 years later, the Roman uh, general destroyed the city and the temple was destroyed. Now, in looking at it through that lens, then it was exactly fulfilled, exactly as he said, that this generation shall not pass until all these things take place. Now, one author here, and I'm using an author named Andrew Colbert, who has, who's an Assembly of God minister, a previous Assembly of God minister out of Australia that wrote along these lines, at least that I could glean from his teachings. So, stay with me for just a little while mentally. Let's take it, let's think about this generation. Let's just look at it for a moment. Before we read in Genesis, or in Matthew 24, we're going to back up to Matthew 23, and we're going to see how Jesus used the term this generation, because that's a lot of the argument that he hinges upon what when is it applicable to this generation what is this generation in Matthew 24 or excuse me 23 Jesus has just given a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees he has upbraided them for the religion how that they are whited sepulchers outside they appear beautiful but inside they're full of dead men's bones and y'all remember y'all know what Matthew 23 is I mean that actually led to his crucifixion right there that scathing rebuke that he gave before the Pharisees led to them you know conspiring to lead to his handing over to the Romans for his execution 
the 34th, the 33rd verse, Jesus here. Now, Jesus is not very politically correct. I'm sorry. I mean, he's more non-politically correct than Donald Trump. Because the last I heard, Donald didn't ever take the podium and say, you generation of vipers, right? But that's how Jesus concluded his sermon here. Look at his altar call. Jesus in the 33rd verse said, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? So it's a stern rebuke to the culmination of a people group, the Israelite people who were in covenant with God, but their history was a continuation of apostasy, small revival, apostasy, small revival, apostasy. So now Jesus is reproving the religious leaders. He said, behold, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you shall kill and crucify. Some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous, uh, listen, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barry, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So Jesus in his stern rebuke looked at the religious leaders of his day and said, you're going to suffer the wrath of God. And matter of fact, it's going to be the culmination of the historical years of Israel killing the prophets that God has sent. Because God, Jesus reproved them and said, you are the sons of those that killed the prophets. And so in this passage of scripture, Jesus said, this is going to come on this generation. Now, this broke the heart of Christ. He, he wept over the city. Remember when he went on the very, his triumphal entry and he came and he said, oh, Jerusalem. Matter of fact, he, he, it's recorded a portion of it here in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem and Jerusalem, you killed the prophets. How long? I would have gathered you together like a hen would gather her chicks and you would not. But he said, your house is left unto you desolate. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. It broke the heart of Christ. He knew. Matter of fact, when the women were, the women of Jerusalem were weeping when Jesus was carrying the cross on his shoulder, he was headed to the hill called Golgotha. He had been beaten at Pontius Pilate's whipping post. He was lacerated. He had been stripped naked. He had a crown of thorns on his head. He just had a robe over him to cover him. He was bleeding and wounded, and they were weeping for him. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, because if they have done this in a green tree, if they have done this when there's a little bit of life in the historic root of ancient Israel, if, there's, if they have done this while, while there's life and sap in the tree, what will be done? What will happen to you once it's dry, once it's cut off and there's no more life in it whatsoever? So, so it was not that Christ, you know, was just in anger and resentment. He was broken in humility for the sufferings that they, he knew the people of his generation were about to go through. Are y'all with me out there today? In Radio Land. So then when he left that stern rebuke of the Pharisees, he goes out and he departs from the temple because this happened in the temple. And uh, he goes to the Mount of Olives. 
as they're crossing, it's the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And from there, as they're journeying, you can look back and you can see the beauty of the temple. Herod's temple had been beautified, what they call Herod's, because Herod had beautified the temple in Jerusalem. And it was monumental in stones and in artwork. It was fascinating to behold. And his own disciples even said, behold the beauty. As they Have you ever done that? You've looked at some of the great uh, you know, architectural buildings of our generation and you've looked at them. I'm sure people looked at the base of the World Trade Centers. Little children and moms and dads would look up at 105, 113 stories and you'd marvel. Well, that was the way the Jewish people beheld the temple. Even Jesus' own disciples said, look at the beauty of the temple. And Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives and from his place on the Mount of Olives, he could easily see the temple in Jerusalem. And notice what he said. See you not these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And when the disciples heard this, now from the Mount of Olives, when they heard that, that pierced them. And they asked three questions, and I'm going to allude to real quickly today. They asked three questions, and I'm going to give you clarification on these questions. But let me tell you what that's like. Let me tell you what that's like. Sherry and I went to our conf- that conference in, in Washington, D.C. I mean, who's been to Washington, D.C.? It's a madhouse, isn't it? I mean, it's a I, listen. This I don't get nervous that often driving, but listen, when I was trying to find the the hotel in Washington D.C., I was Shatakaya Mosian as I was driving because I just wanted, you know. And also, I was a little bit nervous because I was going turkey hunting in Maine, and I had a Mossberg 835 with me, and I don't know if that would be looked upon real well. The old hillbilly out of Arkansas showing up with this Mossberg 35. <laughs> Like that, but nonetheless, I was nervous, and it's just a madhouse. And and you know, Sherry and I got to visit the U.S. Capitol, and we also got to see, you know, from the U.S. Capitol, you can see the one, the Washington Monument, and many of you that have been there, y'all see the big buildings of the history of these United States have taken place. What Jesus did would be the equivalent of a prophet sitting right there, looking at the state capitol looking, knowing down the road is the White House and all the Library of Congress and the Pentagon and everything and saying not one stone will be left before this generation closes. That's a powerful statement that he made. It pierced his disciples because they understood that when he said something, come on now, they had seen, they had validated, they saw his miracles and so they knew. So that pierced them and so they asked questions. Wouldn't you ask questions? And so they did as well. And they said, tell us, when shall these things be? That's a great question. I want to know, when's this about to happen? What's going to take place? And what will be the sign of thy coming? Now, I'm going to bring clarification to that and of the end of the world. That's, those are three questions. Now, before we look at them and break them down, I just want you to note for a moment of time, Mark records the questions just slightly different. Mark records this. They, they ask this, and tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Because I believe that when you look at a passage in the peril or in the teachings of Jesus, you got to capture it from each gospel writer. Are y'all hearing me today? 
to get the clarification. So Mark said, when shall these things be? And when is all these things going to be fulfilled? Luke writes it just slightly differently. Let me go ahead and just read it real quickly. It's just one verse of scripture in Luke chapter 21, verse 7. And they asked him saying, Master, when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are going to come to pass? But Matthew's is recorded slightly different, but it needs a little bit of clarification. And I'm going to do this for just a moment of time before we go into it. Tell us then, when shall these things be? That's a great question. But often associated this is then what shall be the sign of thy coming? And a lot of people look at that and say, this is Jesus prophesying his return. But let me say this. They weren't asking about his return. And you and I have to understand this. They did not believe that he would be taken from them. They did not believe that he was going to go away as of yet. They were with him to the very last hour expecting to fight a war to deliver the Jewish people. To the very hour, the night of his betrayal, Peter pulled out and said, here are two swords. Let's go right now. I'm like David fighting. I'm ready for battle. Let's go. Let's kill the Romans. Kill the Romans. Kill the Romans. Deliver Israel. So they were not asking, when will be thy second coming? They were asking, when is this going to come? When is this wrath? When is this destruction? When is this? It's really almost the same question that they asked even after Jesus was resurrected. Remember in Acts chapter 1, what did they ask Jesus? When shall be? When shall the Father put in his own power? Right the day he was lifted up off of the same place, Mount of Olives, that they asked a similar question. They said, when? When are you you going to put in your power? Remember what Jesus said? Somebody may preach on it tonight. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons when the Father has put in his own power. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. It's not about the destruction of Jerusalem right now. It's about you going to reach out and save as many. Because the destruction will take place, but you don't concern yourself with it right now. You take the power of my gospel. Let the anointing come on your life and deliver men and women from darkness, right? And so here Jesus then, so Jesus sets about to systematically answer that question as well. And then we say, well, he's talking about the end of the world. The end of the world. We're like the end of the world. We're like, what was this? Chicken Little. Chicken Little waits for the sky to fall. Listen, I don't want to, listen, whenever Jesus comes back, whenever that is, I don't know, he will return one day. But I don't want to be hidden in the four walls of the church in fear like Chicken Little that the, the sky is going to fall. I want to be this, uh, the light holding forth the love of God, the power of God, and saying, come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Come while there's still yet time. That's the mission of the church. And so here, that, that question, though, is different than what you think. He's not speaking of the end of the world as of the, of the world itself, the, the planet, speaking of the end of the age. The age, the end of the age. And that's a, a very important thing, and time won't allow me to go into it, that different viewpoints of what the age actually is. I'm watching the time because I'm just now getting, put, the, put it down, put it down, people. Put it down, Lord. Sun, moon, be thou still. All y'all Wednesday night folk, right? You know what I'm talking about. Real quickly, we're going to skim Matthew 24. Time's not going to allow me to develop it at least today. And I won't be preaching next Sunday, so I'll have to bring clarification if I need to two weeks from now. So I may do the very most effective job that any pastor has ever done of officially confusing his church to the degree that they are beside themselves. Is that right? Is that Hello, Jesus. Let me tell you about someone just real quickly. It's Flavius Josephus. Many of you are familiar with him. But Josephus, if I can give you a little bit of his history for a moment of time, was actually 
a, uh, for just a moment of his history real quickly. He was first a Jewish priest. He later was forced to be a militia leader during the revolt of the Jews that led to its final destruction from 66 A.D. until 70 A.D. He was taken prisoner. While prisoner, he was proclaimed a prophet because he spoke that the, emperor, that, that the, uh, the general Vespian would eventually become the emperor. When, when that actually came true, Vespian uh, in 69 AD spared him from prison, rewarded him handsomely, freed him from his chains, and eventually adopted him into his own family. And he allowed him then to write later he would still give him the assignment of watching the city be destroyed and that had to be a difficult moment being a jew watching the city of jerusalem but josephus gives us a first century record of the events that transpired in jerusalem not in the yet to be future not in the destruction of a third temple but in the first century temple and I don't know if I'll have time. I mean, I'm looking out at you right there, and you're already getting distracted on me. I don't know if I'll be able to develop that today. I've got to be really careful here because I don't want to cut the heart out of this. I just want you to know, I want you to know, church family, that something is at work. God is raising up a church, right, that can be a calming presence in the midst of confusion. That's what I want to be a part of, right? I'm looking for it. I don't want to be a part of the confusion, right? I don't want to be a part of it. So for a moment of time, what we'll do then real quickly is I'll have, to, I'll have to omit some things. I'll have to come back to this in two weeks to bring some clarification for you here today. That always happens when we have a powerful altar service, but it narrows my preaching down just a little bit. But in Matthew 24, as we see the things that most his futurists teach are yet in the future, Josephus gives us clarification that maybe they were fulfilled in the past, okay? So now, just for a moment of time, let's look at this. Matthew 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying what? Saying, I am the Christ. Saying that I am the Christ and shall deceive many. He said, uh, so, but, but let me go and jump in right, real quickly. Here's what Josephus said about the destruction of the, the temple of Jerusalem and the city. He said, a false prophet was the occasion of this people's destruction. Because a false prophet had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get up upon the temple and that they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now, there then was taken a great number of false prophets who were suborned by the tyrants to impose upon the people who denounced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting and that they might be buoyed, as B-U-O-Y-E-D, say it for me. All right, up above fear and care by such hopes. So Josephus is actually saying in that generation, there were a lot of false prophets. There are a lot of false Christ. There are a lot of people claiming up until the very final hour when the city was besieged and famine had, had annihilated the city, there were still prophets that were standing on the temple walls and standing up on the gates and the walls of the city and proclaiming that God was going to rescue the people and that rescue never happened. And it led to the demise of the people. So some suppose that the false prophets are not false prophets that are yet in the future, but false prophets that have already taken place. Then it says in the sixth verse that there would be wars and rumors of wars. And I know you say, Pastor Brown, we live in a time when there's a lot of wars. Well, there were a lot of wars going on in that first century. 
from 30 AD to 70 AD, Pliny the Elder records that the Romans were fighting wars in Germany and Britain and were trying to uh, put out skirmishes all throughout the empire. And another commentary said that there are 40 years that intervened before the destruction of the Jerusalem was full of these wars in all directions that we may probably think of the words as referring spe- specifically to wars that affected the Jews. So that what Jesus was actually saying, the wars that I'm talking about are the wars that are affecting the Jewish people scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Let's go a little bit further. Famines and earthquakes. We see that in what verse? The seventh verse. For he said there will be famines and earthquakes in dying diverse places. Well, we understand that a famine was the result of the, of the city being besieged. Famine is always the result of the city being besieged. We see famine in Syria today. God only knows the famine that's taking place in North Korea. Are y'all with me out there? And so famine took place in the destruction of, of the city uh, for, for sure. But it, even Paul record, or the, Luke records in the book of Acts about famines that would take place. Agabus the prophet spoke of a famine that would take place. Josephus says this, Now every sort of death was thought more tolerable than the famine, insomuch that the Jews despaired now of mercy, yet they would fly to the Romans and would themselves even of their own accord fall among the murderous rebels also. Did you know during the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, there was such an insurrection amongst the Jews that there was a little bit of food that was stored up, that they they could have held off the besieged city, they could have held off the Romans for years. And do you know they fought amongst themselves till one group of Jews went and burned the food sources that they had stored to save the city. And it left the entire city in famine. And so it goes on and on, and time is is escaping me to develop that thought. Martyrdom, verse number 9, speaks about uh, you'll be persecuted. Look at this. They're going to deliver you up to the synagogues. Anybody that reads the book of Acts can remember when they killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. We can remember the stoning of Stephen. We can understand that all the apostles except one died of martyrdom. It was exactly as Jesus said that they're going to kill you and they're going to persecute you, being first the Jews and later the Rome, and later Rome. Then the gospel, the 14th verse, the promise that the gospel would go to all the world all the world that he's speaking of in this day was the all the roman empire by the time the apostle paul wrote some of his final epistles he even said this this sound has been heard in all the world paul said this gospel is preached to every creature was he talking about every person living on the planet no but all the roman empire had heard the power of the gospel of jesus christ and bring you some clarification because this is going to stump you for two weeks and you're going to be on the internet and you'll be reading and looking and you're going to say, man, I don't know what's wrong with our preacher. But nonetheless, you know, clarity will come, right? Uh, The abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Jesus said this, when you see it standing in the holy place where it ought not, then he said that you need to flee the city. Did you know that, again, it's used by the futures to tell us that in the third rebuilt temple that the Antichrist will go in and he will erect an image of himself and they will sacrifice to the Antichrist. But actuality was is that the Romans erected the insignia of Rome in the, in the temple. And Jesus said, when you see that happen, flee. Josephus records one of the craziest things that took place. When the Romans actually penetrated the city in 66 AD, three and a half years before its destruction, and could have launched the war, they, they, they put the, the stake of the of the insignia down and some even sacrificed to it but for whatever reason the roman general backed out for three days for no known reason and when he did the christians that were in the city and many of the devout jews some held on and said we're going to hold out but others said it's time to abandon ship 
right? The, but why did the Christians, why, why does history record that not a single Christian died in the destruction of the temple? Why? Because they remembered what Jesus said. When you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing where it should not, then if you're up on the rooftop, don't you go and pack your bags, right? It's time to vacate the city if you want to survive. Now, see, the reason why this means more to me looking back than uh, anticipating in the future is why. Because they found refuge in the words of Jesus. They found preservation and protection in following the words of Jesus. Now, those that are in the futures camp say it's wrong to look back in the lens of praetorism. But I look for a moment and say, wait just a minute. If that man prophesied something, it came to pass exactly as he said. So whatever he said is going to come to pass. Right? And so I can find some sense of security in a maddening world, finding myself hidden in the words of Jesus. Glory to God. Let me go just a little bit farther, and I'll, I'll just, I'm going to cut that part off right there, and I'll come back to it. I'll pick it up in two weeks. But the, here was the, the motive behind my message. Let me, get, let me just cut to the chase. I'll tuck the notes away. We'll pick it up, and I'll bring clarification to you in two weeks. Not on Wednesday night. Because I already got another study going. But in two weeks, I'll bring clarification. Hidden in the text, I think, may be what God is saying to the church today. And it may not be that I'm prophesying the next ant- or the Antichrist or trying to see if he's going to be, uh, you know, a, a part of a revised Roman Empire. Is he going to be Italian? Is he going to be European? Or now is he going to be Syrian? Or is he going to be Islamic? I don't like to talk about the Antichrist. My infatuation. Oh, hallelujah, my infatuation. I don't have time to look at the the fake when I can look at the authentic. I don't have time to be trying to figure out who is going to sit on some... I don't don't have time to be trying to figure out who's going to sit in a a rebuilt temple. I just want to know the one that's sitting on my heart. He's on the throne of my heart. The Christ, the one that, come on, he bore my sins and he carried my shame. He covered my iniquities. He delivered me from my destruction. And he called me near unto him and he calls me my own. Come on, the scripture says, you know, he brought me to his banqueting table. And his banner over me is love. He calls me my beloved. It and I thank God for him today. You can study the Antichrist. You can watch the Left Behind movies and read all the books. I'm going to just focus in on Jesus. I'm just going to be in so in love with him and his grace and his goodness and his kindness. And I'm going to hold to every word that he said because I find safety and security in his words. Here's the word that I'm going to leave with you today. This is what motivated me to speak this message. If I jump down all the way to Matthew 24 and if I weigh it in the balance and say, futurist, Praetorist, historicist, I arrive at the conclusion and I go, I don't know. That's, that's my theology. Because I've read everybody's book. I've looked at every viewpoint. I've weighed everything in the balances. I don't know if the events that are taking place in the Middle East are the prelude to something greater. I don't know that. It might be, it might not be. I don't know if I will see the actual physical return of Jesus in my generation. I don't know that. I have loved people that knew in their heart that they would live to see the rapture. And we preached their funerals. People that I know and love that had faith in God. That promised and said, I know I'm going to. God gave me a word. I'll live to see his return. And they died. And we buried them. So I can't stand in front of you in a sense of hypocrisy and say that I can tell you that you will see the actual return of Jesus. I say this, there's always a sense of uncertainty applied to it. 
So Jesus, in the midst of all this teaching, and I'll bring clarity to it in two weeks, here's what he said. He said this, 44th verse, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Let's read just a little bit further. So then Jesus, this is my culmination here. This is what motivated me to share this with you today. Here's my responsibility to heed the words of Jesus. Who then is that faithful and wise servant? That's what he wants to know. Well, it doesn't matter Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you lived in the first century or you're the last generation. We are now 48 generations since Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. 48 generations since it took place. I don't know when the terminal generation is. But Jesus said, he asked the question, who is that faithful servant? Who is? Who is? He said, who's the one that's going to follow me? Who's the one that I can bless? Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Who's the one that I can trust to do my will? Who is the one that won't get caught up in the things of the world? He said, I'll tell you, I'll make him ruler over all my goods. I'll just, if the Bible says that he that hath shall have more. And he that don't have, even what he don't have will be taken away from him. Jesus went further. He said, but if, here's the danger of our generation. Here's the danger of living in America in 2016. If, even in the Christian church, my evil servant shall say, this evil servant says, my Lord delays his coming. My Lord delays his coming. So I'm going to go to the VFW on Saturday nights. I'm going to get, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm preaching better than y'all shouting. I know you said, Pastor, you didn't go to meddling. I know. But I'm just telling you, I see a church that has become apathetical and complacent and is drifting away. We're engrossed with entertainments. We're engrossed with sports. We ain't got time for God. We ain't got time for church. We shack up together like the people in the world. While we condemn the people in the world, we are a messed up group. And Jesus said, who is my faithful servant? That's who I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody that will come out of the world that will come out of the world and live a different life. Because if you are apathetical, and if your soft religion has lulled you in to a spiritual slumber, it doesn't have to be his physical return for him to come for you. Because no man is promised tomorrow. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. So by ripping the heart out of my sermon here today, like the, a watermelon that you ate the heart out of and left the rind for everybody else, I've given you the heart for just a second. I believe that God is speaking through the whole context of eschatology, not the particular lens, not the praetorism or historicism or futurism. The real question is, what are you doing? What are you doing? No matter what camp you're in, doesn't matter whether it was Jew or Gentile. He said, will you be watching and living and loving and serving God and not be so worldly that you cannot tell the difference between a child of God and a person of the world? And that's what we're in danger of. We're in danger of a complacency and an apathy. Daryl's joined me on the platform today, and I'm only letting you out of here just because I've preached a long time already, but I'm not finished. Because the text is, speak, is spoken to my heart. And I, I want to say this to you, church family, from somebody as a pastor that loves people and loves our church family, we've got to guard ourselves. We have got to guard ourselves because if we think for a moment of time 
that we can fill our hearts and minds with all the wickedness of the world and it not affect us until it is possible that even the righteous could be deceived. Right? Jesus said to this passage right here, he said, if he says he's delayed his coming, so I'm going to go and do all these things. I'm just going to live life. I'm going to let that party spirit. That party spirit's in America. Come on, it is. We, sell, we have people celebrating on the streets over wicked things that are going on. And if you're not careful, you'll be drawn right into it. And then you say, well, and that day will come on you unawares. It doesn't have to be the return of Jesus. He can come for you. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not just a pastor. Once again, you're one of those preachers. You use scare tactics. You're just trying to scare. You know what? If that's what it takes. The Bible says, for some, show compassion. And some, it says, save with fear. And we need godly fear in America today. We've painted God to be a sugar daddy rather than a righteous judge. Right? Now, listen, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus taught us about a loving father. He did. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? I know that. I thank God he's a loving father. But I also remember the other words of Jesus. The other words of Jesus are these. Fear not him who can only destroy the body, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So somewhere along the line, there's got to be a happy medium somewhere. And I'm not talking about an exuberant psychic. Y'all get that happy medium. Never mind. It's way out there. I knew you'd get that, Kim. I'm talking about somewhere along the line, we got to know God loves us. He's gracious to us. We sing about his mercy and his kindness. But if we trod underfoot the blood of the Son of God, then one day we will stand before him without the covering. And that's got to do something in our hearts to make our calling and election sure. We are lacking conviction in the American church. If nothing comes out of our Sunday nights other than us praying for God to send conviction, what do you mean we're lacking conviction? Because people that know better are doing things that they know better without conviction. And that's what's hard. That's where you go, what in the world is going on here? What in the world is going on? If that servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and he falls prey, then, then it can happen. It can come. It may not come this way. He may just come by the death angel. I'm not trying to win a popularity contest here today. I'm just trying to be honest with you. There has to be that balance in our heart that we say, God, I, I want to make sure that I'm serving you, that I'm loving you, that I'm in your son, Jesus. I'm not trying to manipulate you or to coerce you or put bondage on you. I'm just trying to tell you we need you making the right decisions before God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed in the Lord's house today. Father, I'm going to pray right now, not in apology to the people for the content, but I am slightly grieved that I was not able to go as deep and to bring clarification uh, to the context. But I know one thing, I have the safety of our church family who studies. And they're going to study, and they're going to read, and they're going to meditate upon these things. But God, I know what you put in my heart.